0: Increase in the overall um, desire to trace ancestry. Wendy and I, watching TV the other night, um, I noticed a couple of commercials, and it just seems they just seem to be growing and growing. And uh, the interest is so strong that if you get on the internet and do a search, you'll find 50 plus free ancestry search sites and engines. And if you want, Um, a more thorough search or one that may be more accurate. You can pay a little and go to 23andme.com or, of course, Ancestry.com. And in many cases, the uptick that's taken place in these searches is purely recreational. People want to know uh, about their backgrounds, but some of it's coming from ulterior motives. There are those who uh, are looking... Or they may not be looking to, but in the process of doing their searches into their backgrounds, they're feeding this sense of tribalism and elitism and intersectionality and identity politics that are all having this segregating effect within our society Uh, to the point that barriers that either had been knocked down or were being knocked down, are now being erected once again. And there's this overwhelming sense of unhealthy pride that has become very, very destructive. But it hasn't always been that way. There have been those in the past. I mean, you probably have done so, or at least your parents did. I know mine did, and I had one for a while, but there were uh, most of us kept scrapbooks, My dad even uh, took the time to trace family records and histories and genealogies, and, and it wasn't out of a desire to gain control or to manipulate or dominate anyone or anything. He simply wanted to keep track of where he had come from. People want to know where they've come from, and those genealogies establish roots, it provides a connectedness that we all desire. It provides identity. And, and again, those who, those who were doing it in the past weren't doing it to flaunt themselves or to vault themselves over other people. It was, again, just providing that stability and, and in some cases even accountability that they longed for. Now for the Jews... Uh, the genealogies were even more than that. Of course, solidarity was very, very important for them in the midst of exile and dispersion. But it was also important in regards to their inheritance, in regards to land, uh, property, not just land, but property, ownership, um, and control. It also played a part in their taxation. If you remember, back to uh, Luke chapter 2 and why... Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem. It was to be taxed, to be counted, to be taxed. But of course the two most important reasons for those genealogies was to keep track of the line that or the lines of both the priests and the kings within the nation of Israel. And due to their importance There were public records or public genealogies kept in Jerusalem, and then there were also private genealogies kept at home. So you had had two records of those genealogies, and and it's safe to say that everyone at that time knew where they came from. Again, remember, Joseph and Mary, they traveled to Bethlehem because he was a descendant of David. So Joseph had to be able to trace his genealogy at least 41 generations. Many of us are lucky if we get three. Well, all that being said, when when we read this genealogy of Jesus that Luke presents to us, and then if we were to go to Matthew chapter 1 and read his genealogy, we soon discover it doesn't take long to realize that they're different. Matthew um, places his, as I just said, at the beginning of his gospel in chapter one. Luke waits and places it here in chapter three between uh, the baptism and Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Matthew's work works from past to present, Luke's works from present to past. Matthew's only goes through Abraham. Luke's goes to Adam and ultimately God. Not all of the names are the same in the two genealogies. And Matthew actually, when, when, or when they both get to David, they, they choose different sons. Matthew chooses Solomon and Luke chooses Nathan. Um, and I could go on. But suffice it to say is that there are some who use these differences, that I've, some of the latter differences that I've just described, and they use them to question the authenticity and the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture. They use it to argue against who we claim and who Jesus himself claimed to be. And I would like to interject at this point and say that I, I believe that Those arguments are easily dismissed and we really don't need to engage in them. They're actually a waste of time. And there are a couple reasons that I believe that. And the first is because of the importance of the genealogies. We have to believe that the Pharisees and Sadducees would have gone straight to the ones in Jerusalem to prove that Jesus was not in the line of David and therefore disprove his claim and thwart the movement. And if they did, and if they had found that, they would have shouted it from the rooftops and we would have records somewhere, and we don't. There's not a record of that at all, because there was no such argument to be made, because Jesus was from the line of David. And secondly, I agree with Calvin. He said this, although it is necessary to seek in order to find... Yet there is a limit to seeking, that you may understand what is useful to be known, and next, that you may adhere firmly to the truth when it has been known. Those who inquire curiously into everything and are never at rest may be truly called questionarians, and that is not a compliment. So therefore, as I mentioned in the email that I sent uh, last week after last week's sermon, the the purpose of this time together in the midst of our liturgy is for proclamation. We, We say that we are studying God's Word, but something different is going on here than that which goes on in a classroom. And so there are things to include in this time, and there are things to leave for later And the things that we will leave for later are the examination, or the examination or examinations of the various explanations of why these two genealogies are different, and the addressing of the issues that arise out of them. My goal is to focus simply upon what, focus on Luke's list, and the purpose of Luke's list, because. I simply want to proclaim what is truly important and that is Jesus Jesus is a real man and Jesus is the real Son of God that is what is important that's both the title and the points of our outline tonight and to do that of course I need to pray so let's do that together father in these moments We pray and ask that you would awaken our attention, you would refresh us, you would melt us and convict us and comfort us. My desire, as always, is to preach and to proclaim your word tonight, and I admit that I am weak and needy, in need of your support and strength and holiness, that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Help me as you have helped me to prepare. Help me tonight to not treat excellent manner in a defective way or to bear a broken testimony to so worthy a Redeemer. And I pray these things for the sake of that Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ and His church. Amen and amen. Well, having just described the the, uh, baptism of Jesus... And then having just described the proclamation or the public pronouncement of uh, the, the Father's public pronouncement of His love and His pleasure in His Son, the only begotten Son, the eternal Son who voluntarily condescended, who emptied Himself of His glory and was and is now veiled in flesh... And prior to the description of the temptation in the wilderness that we'll come to next week, Luke inserts this genealogy. One commentator said this is basically a formal introduction of Jesus. And as I just mentioned, he introduces him as a real man and as the real Son of God. So let's take those in order and look first at Jesus, a real man. Luke says, you'll notice in verse 23, that Luke says that he was about 30 years old. That is the age in which uh, men uh, at that time were seen as able to be in positions of authority. And you'll notice in Scripture that Joseph, David, and Ezekiel are all described as taking on their positions at that particular age. And then Luke says this, he says that he was the son as was supposed of Joseph, and this wasn't to question Joseph's fatherhood. Everyone knew that Joseph was Jesus' father. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all three Gospels record the fact that, that others identified Jesus as Joseph's son and Joseph as Jesus' father. Luke is simply beginning the geology that he lists here with a reminder of Jesus' miraculous conception, right? that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, before he establishes Jesus' right to serve as the mediator between God and all of humanity. And then everything that follows after that statement is meant to communicate that he was in fact a real man. He was a real man and was a part of a real family. And that family had a very large family tree. There were a long line of those that had come before him. His tree included the famous, his tree included the infamous, but mostly, as Aaron pointed out, it included the unfamous, those that we would not know of had they not been listed here. There There were a few prominent names, and we read those toward the end, David, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Noah, and Abraham, but the rest were basically normal, everyday, average men, And the wives that they were married to were ordinary, average women. And the children that they had were ordinary, average boys and girls. Nothing spectacular. They came from all walks of life. And some of them walked closer to the Lord than others. Some were responsible. Others were irresponsible. Some were rich. Some were poor. Some lived long lives. Others died young. But what they all had in common was they were all sinners. But they had all been used and were examples of God fulfilling His promise. And it's safe to say that, and I think we can say this, that Jesus was born into and had the same family baggage that every family experiences. And He blended in perfectly And what I mean by that is we read in Isaiah chapter 53 that there wasn't really anything impressive about Jesus. There wasn't anything that would cause him to stand out when compared to others. Heads would not necessarily turn in his direction when he walked by. It was actually just the opposite. He wasn't strikingly handsome. He wasn't probably handsome at all. There wasn't anything, again, that would draw our attention to him and away from others. Uh, At family reunions, he probably would have blended in rather than be the center of attention. The writer of Hebrews, as you remember, even said, "...he was made like his brothers in every respect." Even to the point of being tempted as they were. But remember, he was without sin. The one thing that was different about him compared to all the rest was his sinlessness. That's what set him apart. The bottom line is as a human being, he had a family and therefore had a heritage, he had roots. Humanly speaking, we we need to think in these terms, he was connected, something, again, humanly speaking, connected to something greater than himself. He was was gaining an identity and stability and accountability as a human. He, He represented, as a human, he represented and reflected that line of people. We used to tell our boys, right, your last name is Taylor, and but you're related to Johnson, and so anywhere you go and anything you do, you represent the name. Jesus was carrying that heritage and those names as a human. But again, all were sinners. But he represented far more than that. Right? He represented far more than that. He not only represented those in his family tree, he re- represented The entire human race. Because he was not only a real man, he was the real son of God. Look at verse 38. Jesus was the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam, who, by the way, uh, this genealogy identifies as a real historical person. Was the Son of God in that he was not born, but was formed out of the dust from the ground and created in the image of God. And he was the head of all humanity. All of humanity descended from him. Listen to Paul's words in Acts chapter 17. And he, being God, made from made one man, from one man, every nation. Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That, that term nation is actually ethnos, and it's, it means, it's where we get our word ethnicity. And so everyone began and has that same origin, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But unfortunately, Adam's relationship with God was broken. We know that from Genesis chapter 3. It was broken by his sin. And as the head of the human race, he plunged every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, from every nation, past, present, and future, on the face of the earth, into sin as well. No one was left out. He corrupted the entire human line. And that's why these words in verse 38 are so important. They not only apply to Adam, but they apply to Jesus in a very unique and extraordinary way. And it's because he was not only a real man, but was the real son of God. And and it's important to notice the difference in sonship here and the sonship described uh, that we looked at last week in verses 21 and 22. And in the words of one commentator, he says this, Nearly all commentators see an identification of Jesus with all humanity in this reference, here in verse 38. The sonship in view here is related to but distinct from the sonship in verses 21 and 22. In verses 21 and 22, the sonship was largely regal and messianic. He goes on to say here, in verse 38, the sonship is more universal and grounded in God's having formed humanity. So in the baptism, he says Jesus is king and is related especially to Israel, but in the genealogy, Jesus is related to all people in a way that expands the scope of his ministry to include the hopes of all. Now, if we were kind of to bring that down a little bit or, or to where we can understand it a little better, he says, basically he's saying that Luke is going to flesh out, or we could say that Luke is going to flesh out through the rest of his gospel, particularly starting next week, and we look at, as we look at the temptation narrative, he's going to begin to show us that Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the new Adam, the one through whom a new humanity would come. So by taking on flesh and dwelling among us, and by taking on the likeness of man, Jesus entered into the fallen humanity that he came to save. And he came to redeem Adam and Adam's entire line. He came to do what Adam had failed to do, and he has done it, and and he, he came to do and has done What Adam failed to do, and he has done it for those, again, from every tribe and nation and tongue on the face of the earth, because as the Son of God, who is truly God and truly man, he is the universal representative and the head of humanity. And listen to how Paul describes him, and we read a portion of this in our confession of sin and assurance of pardon, but listen to how Paul describes it in Romans 5. He says, therefore... And now listen to how he writes to the church at Corinth. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. This is why Luke did not stop at Abraham. He didn't stop at Abraham. Yes, he included Abraham because Jesus was The one to whom the promise had been made and was the one who actually through whom the promise had been fulfilled. As Abraham's seed. David's included because he was the son of David. He was the promised son of David who would rule upon his throne forever. But Luke adds and goes to Adam Because Jesus was also the seed of the woman. He was the seed of the woman that we read about in Genesis 3, 15. And in the words of Philip Riken, he says, Jesus became the son of the son of the son of sinners so that He could rescue us from our sins. Well, we just scratched the surface. Um, some may wish we had jumped in and looked at every name. We're going to allow Aaron's reading to suffice. I, I simply want to look at three points tonight as we move toward the close. I want to look at our common humanity. I want to look at our common fallenness. And third, our common salvation. Our common humanity, our common fallenness, our common salvation. We, as I mentioned when we began, we live in, and Aaron did a great job explaining this earlier as well, we live in a world where we are bombarded, that we've been bombarded with news, and not only have we been bombarded with the news of pandemic and other things, but we are bombarded with news, information, and language have been and continue to be that focuses on what divides and separates mankind rather than on what unites us. Everything has been about what divides, whether it's our skin color, or the language that we speak, or the nation that we live in, or the political ideology that we hold to or espouse, the amount of money that we possess, or the religious beliefs that we profess. Over and over and over and over again, it's about how we're different. But the reality is as we read and understand this genealogy, the reality is we share a common humanity. Our genealogy, the the searches that we might do online, all of those stop short of where they really go because they don't end in Adam. All the blood that we possess all comes or begins at the same point. And Because we're, we, we share that common humanity, that doesn't mean that there should be uniformity of beliefs. It doesn't mean that there should be uniformity of opinions and lifestyles. But what it does mean is that there should be civility, and honor, and respect, and protection, and appreciation for one another. In the midst of, in the midst of those things, right, in the, in the midst of the diversity, those things should exist. Is, is that not the true definition of tolerance? Honor and respect despite our differences. We should look beyond the external characteristics and qualities and beliefs and morals and ethics and see people who share a common origin and treat them as we desire to be treated, as those who have been created in the image of God. And the question we naturally ask is, why is that so hard? What's, I don't even remember where this is from. Why can't we all just get along? Why all the tribalism? Why all the elitism? Why all the intersectionality? Why the identity politics? Why the lack of civility? Why the lack of honor and respect and protection and appreciation? And the answer is because of our common fallen. We share a common humanity, but we also share a common fallenness. Those who are in Adam not only share a common origin, we share a common problem. All of us that are a part of mankind are fallen. Mankind is fallen. The image that we bear, the image of God that we bear has been corrupted. And sin reigns. And no one's immune. Everybody is infected. There is, well, I'm not going to say that. Yeah, there is no vaccine, right? Because this is deep and profound. Every man, woman, boy, and girl, again, from every tribe, nation, and race, need to be saved because we're sinners, separated from God. We are all we, we, I'll put it this way. We are not all inherently good. We are all inherently evil. But there's good news. Right? There's good news. There is a common salvation. There's a common salvation. There is a way. There's only one way, but there's a way. And that way is the Lord Jesus Christ. The salvation that He offers through His life, death, and resurrection is for every single solitary human being who turns to faith in Him. Romans 4, Galatians 3 tell us, Paul is clear that anyone who looks to Christ in faith becomes a spiritual child of Abraham. They become a part of the new humanity. They join Jesus' genealogy. We're a part of the family of God. We're grafted in to the tree, that family tree. And that means, in the words of Daryl Bach, in a sense, the only genealogy that counts for us is the one that connects us to Jesus. For His work makes our biological roots less relevant. He goes on to say, Jesus came to reconcile us to each other, and He is in a unique position to accomplish that goal. God's plan of salvation indicates that He did not want to be a tribal God of only one people or of only one region. He came for everyone. And those who are a part of God's family, those who are part of that family tree include men and women It includes rich and poor. It includes young and old. It includes people of every color, from every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity, every people group, every language. When we look to the Lord Jesus in faith, we become recipients. Recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We become co-heirs of everything that's Christ's. We share in that inheritance that Christ has secured for us and that the Father is currently keeping for us, safekeeping. In Him, in the Lord Jesus, we have all we need. So I think, brothers and sisters, the, the best thing that we can do in the midst of our Divisive culture is to live in light of these things. To live in light of this truth. First, as I said last week, in our personal day to day experience, in our relationships, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, and in our community. And children, children, you on the playground. running down the street with your friends and neighbors of your neighborhood, right? those that gather in your backyard, those that you can't wait to see if, if you get off a school bus, or even those that are in your class, you're included. We all need to treat everyone. We need to seek to live peaceably with everyone. We should treat others kindly and equitably, justly, fairly, honestly, and impartially because we are all created in the image of God and bear His image. Secondly, we should address the problems within our culture first and foremost, as sin problems. Yes they, yes, they bear themselves through social issues and political issues and racial issues and economic issues, and we could go on with that, but the bottom line, the, the core of the, of the problem in every sense is sin. And therefore, it is our responsibility as the church to maintain our mission and ministry, which is gospel proclamation. And third, within the church, we need to continue to treat one another as family. As Again, if I could steal Paul's words from the church at Thessalonica, I, I, would, I would say to you, I see what you're already doing, excel still more. We're family. And we need to live as those who have been reconciled to God and to one another. And so as, as, as others look on and watch and see May we always be ready to give a defense, or may we always be ready to explain why we're living the way we're living because this is countercultural? And the answer is because Jesus is a real man, Jesus is the real Son of God, and our hope is not in anyone or anything other than Him. Because He alone, He alone saves from sin, He alone transcends differences, and He alone unites. Thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that we who were once in Adam are now in Christ because of His grace and mercy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.